Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib. I'm really excited about today's guest. I really want to uh, give him the honor of introducing him really well. Today's episode is with Dr. Doug Bremner. Doug Bremner is a professor of psychiatry and radiology and director of the Emory Clinical Neuroscience Research Unit at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and a staff psychiatrist at the Atlanta VA uh, in Decatur, Georgia. He moved to Emory from Yale in November of 2000, where he spent the first 12 years of his career. So his research has use neuroimaging and neurobiology measures to study the neural correlates and neurobiology of post-traumatic stress disorder related to combat and childhood abuse, as well as the related area of depression. His more recent work expanding to look at the relationship between brain behavior and physical health, including studies of heart disease and the brain. Really interesting research that he's done. Dr. Bremner has co-authored or co-authored over 400 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and written or edited nine books, including Does Stress Damage the Brain? Understanding Trauma-Related Disorders from a Mind-Body Perspective, which was published in 2002, and You Can't Just Snap Out of It in 2014, and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder from Neurobiology to Treatment, uh, which came out in 2016. He's on the editorial board of several journals and has received several awards for his work, uh, and we're really, really honored to have him here. Please welcome Dr. Doug Bremner. Thank you. An honor to have you here. And uh, as always, JP, great to see you. Great to be here. We're really excited about this conversation, about this particular topic that you are uh, so deeply invested in, and that is post-traumatic stress disorder in particular, also related to depression. And so I want to give you the opportunity just to share a little bit about your history um, your story kind of going through Yale, through Emory, and what really brought you into psychiatry and your interest in PTSD to begin with. Okay, well, thanks for having me, um, Dr. Nabib. I uh, started out my career at Yale in, in, as a psychiatry resident, and I was the inpatient resident on one of the floors of the VA. It was the West Haven VA in Connecticut, and that's the VA that's affiliated with Yale. And in that year, they converted the floor from a long-term psychoanalytic-focused inpatient floor to disease-based model, where one floor was the, for PTSD patients, or another floor for depression, and, uh, and a different ward for schizophrenia and substance abuse. And I happened to be on the PTSD floor, and in that year, uh, the Yale psychiatry department uh, got a grant called the National Center for PTSD. It came from the VA and the Yale West Haven site was the, the uh, neurosciences division and they had other divisions for education and for behavioral research. And so I was the resident there. I became the chief resident that first year that it started. And then I got a VA biological psychiatry fellowship and, I just saw it as a great opportunity to do research in PTSD. And it was a very interesting time because we did a study at the time and looked at what diagnoses these people were getting and 
The diagnosis of PTSD was rarely used, although it had been first established in 1980. This is is about 1990, and most people were getting other diagnoses. So they weren't really being properly diagnosed and, you know, often not getting the right treatment. Absolutely. Go ahead, JP. We moved to uh, down Emory. Yeah, when you moved down to Emory, obviously that that interest in PTSD remained. Can you give us a little sense as to how that move took place and and how the um, the continuation of that work has sort of blossomed into a pretty remarkable career at this point? Yeah, thanks, JP. So I was uh, doing research in PTSD. We did the first uh, brain imaging study, and PTSD was in veterans using magnetic resonance imaging or MRI to look at volume of a, of a brain area called the hippocampus. And at the time, there really was no neurobiology research in PTSD. There's only one small clinical trial that had been you know, done at the West Haven VA. And so it was, a, it was a novel concept that there could be changes in the brain associated with psychological trauma. Nowadays, people kind of take that for granted, but at the time, it was... It was considered more of an emotional condition, and there was some pushback to the idea that you could get changes in neurobiology, even though there was, you looked at something like the Society for Neuroscience, there were 10,000 researchers doing research on the effects of stress on the brain in animals, uh, but somehow people didn't seem to make the connection to link that to, you know, to, to humans. So I was, uh, um, at the time, some of the people were leaving Yale to go to the NIH and and I had been uh, collaborating on a uh, on a project to look at the effects of early life trauma on the brain using MRI with with the PI who was at Emory at the time. And so I was recruited to come to Emory, and I did a second residency in nuclear medicine. And so I was able to be the director of the pet center when I came to Emory, and I saw that as a as a good opportunity. And and so we continued doing these um, these studies of, of uh, brain imaging and PTSD, looking at the effects of treatment, including praxine, which is Paxil and Dilan on the brain, showing increases in hippocampal volume and improvements in cognition. So I had that background in studying the effects of treatment on the brain. And then an engineer from Georgia Tech who'd been working with the Defense Events Research Project Agency contacted me about um, their new program in electrics, which is how I got involved in vagal nerve stimulation research. Is that Omar Einan? Yeah, it was Omar, Omar Einan. He's from, he's an engineer from Georgia Tech. And so Omar had done a lot of work with DARPA, which is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And he's, you know, an inventor. So he'd been inventing various gadgets that, you know, were useful for the military. And DARPA developed a new program called electrics, which would be like electrical RX, RX meaning treatment. So they called it the electrics, but it's spelled E-L-A-C-T-E-R-X. And they were looking at any kind of, you know, electrical stimulation or ultrasound stimulations that could be used to study physiology or develop new treatments. And one of the things they wanted to get into was PTSD. And I think he just looked around for someone local doing research in PTSD and and this is something new for me, so it was interesting. And and um, so we uh, originally wrote a large grant, $10 million grant, to do implantable BNS. They didn't fund that. And then one of the cardiologists I worked with, Amit Shah, was looking around and saw a couple companies 
that, you know, had not invasive VNS, which would be uh, cheaper. And so DARPA gave us a smaller amount, initial project to look at traumatized non-PTSD. And then when we achieved the goals for that, we they gave us another um, amount to look at PTSD. And, um, you know, to me, it was, it was an interesting area. It was, you know, exciting, uh, something, you know, a device that could be applied to, um, all psychiatry, the way I looked at it. So there, within the DARPA group, they have these meetings that they call performers. So there'd be short five minute presentations from different groups that had gotten funding for the electrics program. And DARPA would, you know, would cut funding through area in areas where they weren't meeting their goals or that they decided weren't interesting. But we were able to keep all of our funding. But there was quite a bit of debate about whether, you know, these non-invasive devices stimulated the vagus, you know, in same degree as implantable devices. But from my perspective as a clinical psychiatrist, I I thought the non-invasive device was more promising because it had the capacity to be implemented in all psychiatry, whereas the, the implantable devices we'd already realized that, you know, they've been, you know, approved by the FDA, but they had never been approved by Medicare, so they were never widely implemented. Correct. So this is a great field to, to dive into uh, and to talk about because we've spent a lot of time on our podcast talking uh, in the mental health area and in the neurosciences area, talking about the effect on the immune cells of the brain, the microglial cells. And one of the prior guests that we had on is a microglial researcher who's done a lot of work looking at the effects of of inflammation or activation of microglial cells in the hippocampus, which is an area that you've obviously spent a fair amount of time looking at into and, and looking at um, and showing that inflammation uh, and activation of these microglial cells disrupts the ability to form new memories, disrupts the ability to uh, recall information properly and to apply it. Um, and so in your in your experiences with the vagus nerve stimulation, um, have you done any research looking at or any studies looking at the effects of the vagus nerve stimulation on these immune cells in the, in the hippocampus or in other areas of the brain? So, um, JP, as I, I think you may know, the, we, we did a study where we looked at the effects of VNS on, on interleukin-6 or IL-6 um, and other inflammatory markers, and including TNF-alpha and, and um, interferon gamma, showing that uh, you can stimulate you know, the stress, you can kind of recreate PTSD symptoms or the stress response by recording a specific traumatic memory and then playing the, the traumatic memory back. And that, that causes PTSD patients to have an increase in anxiety and, and symptoms. And they also had this big increase in IL, IL-6, about a three-fold increase, which is pretty remarkable. They, they have the same increase when you do mental, what we call neutral mental stress tests, which would be like, you know, giving the public speech with negative feedback. Um, which is another area of research that we do. But so it, in, in normal, in traumatized non-PTSD patients, they don't have this IL-6 response to traumatic memories. They don't, they don't get, you know, have a heart rate or blood pressure increase either. But in PTSD, they have a, this um, big increase in IL-6. It occurs about 60 to 90 minutes after the, um, the, the stressful script and it's blocked by VNS and VNS also blocks the, interferon gamma and TNF-alpha response. So, so 
we're seeing a, uh, um, you know, a, a pretty, pretty dramatic block. Um, the other interesting thing about the hippocampus is that, you know, in, in, um, in COVID, which is, you know, another potential application of ENS, I'm on this, this committee called researching the effects of COVID long-term to affect recovery. It's called the recovery study. It's a study with tens of thousands of people nationwide. So I'm on the national neuropsychiatric pathobiology committee. So I'm, which meets every week. So I'm very involved in that. And, you know, I've been writing a review paper about the effects of COVID on the brain and mental health. And one of the findings is that COVID is activating microglia in the brain and astrocytes. It's the activation of microglia in the hippocampus correlates with um, whether or not people develop delirium. So post-mortem uh, brain Brain uh, uh, examinations show that the microglia activation that the campus is seeing more in those with, who had delirium during the course of of their COVID inpatient stay. So that that's another um, and that's that's another link. So we think that you know VNS is probably you know well, from animal studies you know that VNS um, activates you know uh, locus ceruleus and you know which has inputs to the hippocampus and is, you know, is affecting neuroplasticity in the hippocampus and medial prefrontal cortex and other areas, which is probably at least part of the reason that, you know, the uh, mechanism by which it's, you know, it, you know, is useful for BTSC because we also showed that I think it was about a 21% reduction in BTSC symptoms over the sham after three months of twice daily treatment for PTSD. And also showed, you know, we've been applying it to opioid withdrawal as well, showing benefit there as well. And in in uh, January 11, 2022, the FDA gave us breakthrough device approval for for the GammaCore, which is one of the the instruments the GAT was involved in, you know, getting off the ground. Yes, and thanks for mentioning that. Uh, the the area of focus for me recently has been around the effects of vagus nerve stimulation on both the microglial cells as well as within the microglial cells, uh, the effect on the mitochondria. And so was wondering whether or not if you or Omar have done any work looking specifically at the intracellular effects of vagus nerve stimulation, because one of the things that, that we've discussed on the on the show is that when inflammation occurs, and, and let me back up one step and say uh, for our audience, stress can occur in a variety of different ways. It can be physical stress, emotional stress, mental stress, and the nervous system responds to stress. Uh, the autonomic nervous system responds by moving into the sympathetic state, and that sympathetic state is the fight or flight response. The immune system it parallels that. The innate immune system parallels that by responding to stress by becoming pro-inflammatory. And so the two systems, the autonomic nervous system and the innate immune system, work together hand in hand when the sympathetic uh, is activated in the autonomic nervous system, you get an activation of, uh, of inflammation or pro-inflammatory activity among innate immune cells like microglial cells in the brain. When that happens, there's a shift in the internal biochemistry of the cells and that causes oxidative stress to start to occur in the mitochondria. And you see as a hallmark of inflammation, a shift of cells 
away from oxidative phosphorylation as, a, as the source of energy to uh, glycolysis. And so was wondering whether or not in the process of your research or in maybe some of Omar's research, because I know Omar largely works in animals, if he's seen this change in energy metabolism in mitochondria and whether or not it's possible to potentially consider some of these disorders as mitochondrial dysfunctions. Um, and that really at the end of the day, we have to consider not, not just the autonomic nervous system, the immune system, but energy metabolism and um, mitochondrial function in the, in the, in the mix. Well, um, so we haven't done any research. I don't think Omer has either on, on mitochondria, although there, there is another, um, I don't remember his name, but there's, I saw a lecture by another Georgia Tech uh, professor who is doing work on mitochondria, as I remember. And I think that, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a likely candidate. It's sort of a new area, which is, uh, you know, very interesting. You know, one thing about, um, you know, related to energy metabolism, mitochondria is that one of the, you know, one of the ways that we, Look at um, so for these studies with VNS, we're looking at brain activation using radioactive water and positron emission tomography. But you can also look at energy metabolism with something called FTG, which is fluorine eighteen labeled glucose. So your the main energy source in the brain is, is glucose, and one of the main um, most the main uses of glucose in the brain is glutamate transport you know, in astrocytes and, and mitochondria, and which is probably driven by inflammation because we showed in the pilot study that that we can do mental stress tasks and there's increased brain uptake in, in some key areas, you know, including the amygdala, which plays a role in fear responses. Uh, increased FDG uptake during those mental stress tasks I mentioned before, like public speaking. So, you know, the increased glucose utilization when people are stressed, it's probably a lot of it is in this glutamate transport. And um, one of the theories of why stress causes smaller hippocampal volume, which has been shown in animal studies and, and in humans, has been replicated many times of smaller hippocampal volume in PTSD, is uh, um, excessive glutamate release in the hippocampus during stress and kind of a failure of glucose energy um, utilization to kind of keep the the glutamate in the cell, and as I remember, it's, it's glutamate is is transported into the into the microglia. I mean, I could be wrong on that, this, but um, but anyway, that was one of the original theories of why stress is toxic to the hippocampus. The other idea is that there may cortisol may have toxic effects, or that there may be decreases in neurotrophins, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Yeah, one of the things that we looked at is the um, the effect of TNF alpha, which is obviously the archetypal uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine released by microglia when they get activated, um, when stress activates them, um, has an effect on the entire glutaminergic system. It uh, also affects things like upregulating AMP and uh, NMDA receptors. And so as a result, the neurons, there's this hyperexcitability or even excitotoxicity that occurs as a result of uh, inflammation leading to an increase, not only in glutamate expression, but also in the effectiveness of the glutamate in exciting the neurons. You see a downregulation of GABA 
GABA-A receptors on neurons as well. So you're sort of even cutting the braking cables, if you will, on the car. Uh, so the, the neurons are under constant assault of uh, excitatory neurotransmitter activity, and their, their saving grace, if you will, of, uh, of inhibition is being, uh, is being reduced. Um, have you seen excitotoxicity as a, uh, or are you suggesting that excitotoxicity is part of the reason why you see decreased hippocampal volumes? Is there uh, literally neurotoxicity going on in those spaces as a result of stress? Yeah, well, one of the theories is that, that well, glutamate is uh, excitotoxic and, and potentially damaging to neurons at, at high levels. And so one of the main theories of why hippocampal volume is reduced is, is glutamatergic excitotoxicity. So something that goes along with that is that, you know, when I was at Yale, one of the, um, one of the discoveries was of a drug called ketamine, which is a, uh, NMDA receptor antagonist. So it's acting on the glutamate system. And I noticed, um, at the time they were studying ketamine as a model for schizophrenia, but I walked through the, they called it pharmacological challenge rooms is in the days before brain imaging. I was walking through and I noticed that they, these healthy subjects that were getting ketamine were, had symptoms that were more like what we call dissociation than psychosis. So they were saying that they're, you know, look at themselves from the top, from the ceiling or feeling out of their body. And a lot of ketamine has also been used as a recreational drug. So people call it special K and they talk about going up into the clouds and meeting other special K users. More recently, um, you know, for reasons I didn't really understand, some of my colleagues at Yale developed it as a treatment for depression. And so now it's been, you know, it's been uh, uh, FDA approved as a nasal spray and also injection for depression. But the scale that I wrote called the clinician administered dissociative state scale, which really best captured the effects of ketamine, was used, you know, over 20,000 pounds by Janssen, you know, when they did their clinical trials, but and translated into, you know, 30 languages. But it, uh, you know, they were kind of looking at dissociation as a, as a side effect of ketamine. The interesting thing about dissociation, it's a trauma-related symptom. So when people, we showed that, it, it, you know, for instance, combat veterans, if they dissociated at the time of a combat event, um, they were more likely to have more severe PTSD down the road. So it's sort of a, almost a marker, if you will, of, of what's going on in the brain when the brain sort of, you know, cracks under stress, if you will, and we, we correlated the degree to which people have these symptoms and smaller hippocampal volume. So we think that dissociation is literally the kind of the behavioral correlate of, of you know, your hippocampus going on overdrive at the time of the trauma. And the link with glutamate, you know, is shown through, you know, the pharmacology academy. And that finding of the correlation has been replicated, you know, a couple of times. So help me understand that um, that the ketamine effects in depression, which would be therapeutic, um, are similar to the effects that a person who's having a traumatic event might experience if they have this dissociative break that then leads to them having a worse case of PTSD. It seems like they're pulling in opposite direction. And, and, and before you answer that, just uh, as an aside, one of the other researchers that I've worked with before is uh, Jeff Lewine out of New Mexico, and he did a lot of work looking at, at non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation and various different neurotransmitter systems. And his 
I'm going to say it was sort of an offhand comment that he made, but he's, he's, he's stuck with it several times, saying that in his experience, the effects of vagus nerve stimulation are have some parallels to ketamine in terms of perhaps he's talking about the positive effects and not the negative effects, I would, I would think. But uh, in, your, in your experiences with ketamine and your experiences with vagus nerve stimulation, do you see any parallels? And then to the question of, you know, how, how do you square the fact that in depression, it's a positive and, in, and the effects mirror things that would be part of the pathology of, uh, of PTSD? Well, you know, so for one thing, um, I was just looking up the name of that. There's a psychiatrist at the Ontario. Um, I forgot his last name, but anyway, the, the um, there's there's some uh, you know research on in animals on the effects of uh, VNS on the brain, and it, and it does seem to sort of parallel the effects of antidepressants. You know, it's, it has positive effects on serotonin, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine. It you know enhances um, synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus. Um, we know not only that, that the hippocampus is smaller in, in PTSD, also smaller in depression, but that any treatment for depression that works for depression enhances nerve growth in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is, is, uh, unique in the brain and being able to grow new neurons in adulthood. And stress inhibits that, um, SSRIs like Prozac enhance it, or Proxetine, Paxil, even electroconvulsive therapy or, you know, drugs in other non-SSRI classes like norepinephrine drugs like ribocetine or inhibitors like tranalcipramine, uh, um, they all promote nerve growth. And there's a theory that, um, that that enhancement of nerve growth in the hippocampus underlies the recovery from, you know, depression and I would argue by extension, uh, PTSD. So the, uh, the, but the thing about with ketamine is, you know, that's something I, I would like to, you know, I, I, so that, that investigation of ketamine is a treatment for depression. Sort of, you know, I was involved in the research and discovering the link with dissociation. And then I, after I left, the, these studies continued and I was not part of the original studies. And I, I like to kind of ask some of the, you know, my colleagues at Yale why they, <laughs> why they, they, they thought that it might be a useful treatment for depression, you know, because I always thought, well, this is sort of a marker of pathology. Um, so it is, it is paradoxical. I've, I've, you know, I've often wondered that, but, uh, you know, why, you know, so, so, you know, that's a good question. You know, the other question is like, why is it that, that VNS activates the locus virilis where norepinephrine is located but then in the periphery, it, it blocks sympathetic function. You know, so normally if you stay, if you put a electrode electrode in the in the locus trulius, which is the brainstem where all the norepinephrine cell bodies are in a monkey, and activate it, then you get released norepinephrine throughout the brain, and it, it stimulates the fight or flight response that goes through the hypothalamus and stimulates the peripheral sympathetic response, which increases heart rate and blood pressure. But we actually see the opposite. So there's some some paradoxes within the within the BNS field that are kind of parallel paradoxes and things like uh, like ketamine. You know why why is ketamine um, efficacious? But we know that it does work for depression. It works very more rapidly than antidepressants do. 
Yeah, the, uh, the we we focused a lot on the upstream effects from from the locus ceruleus. You know, when you when you're coming into the nucleus tract of solitarius in the you know in the afferent direction, you're going to activate the locus ceruleus. You see an upregulation in, in serotonergic activity from the raphi nucleus, but you also um, see activation of the release of acetylcholine. And I actually think that that's sort of where the game begins. That the norepinephrine release is important, but it's not critical. It's it's simply the the mechanism by which other systems are being activated. And it's the release of acetylcholine widely throughout the central nervous system that leads to the effects on the uh, immune cells. So if I, if I can sort of tie back all the different pieces that you've been talking about to be consistent with what, what we've sort of learned through other interviews, uh, we have a, a system that becomes hyperactive and hyper-responsive in a pro-inflammatory way as a result of stress. And that stress leads to the release of inhibitory, I'm sorry, release of of pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha. TNF-alpha and other pro-inflammatory cytokines has an effect on serotonin um, metabolism or tryptophan metabolism and the synthesis of serotonin. It actually suppresses it. So inflammation has the ability to reduce serotonin synthesis as well as reduce the um, or activate the reuptake mechanism. So I like to say that inflammation is a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer. It's the opposite of an antidepressant. But it's not getting back to the uh, mitochondria just briefly. One of the downstream metabolites or uh, from serotonin is melatonin. And so one of the things you see in depression and other uh, PTSD, I'm sure, and other uh, areas of mental health associated with this disruption in in both inflammation and uh, neurotransmitter levels is sleep uh, sleep disorders. This disruption of normal sleep and restorative sleep, not spending as much time in restorative sleep uh, because you have a disruption of melatonin, but you also see a disruption in the uh, energy metabolism. And so that's that's the tie back to why I was talking about mitochondria. So I think, you know, going to maybe one of the things you were talking about before, which is the size of the hippocampus and neuroplasticity, et cetera, that you see when you treat depression is actually the same effect that you see when you treat uh, an autoimmune disease with an anti-TNF-alpha drug or an anti-inflammatory biologic you see an increase in cognitive function, a, a, a sort of cessation of the brain fog that sometimes accompanies depression and, and other disorders that have an inflammatory component to them. Uh, also, it also uh, relieves fatigue. So d- maybe, maybe switching gears here a little bit, um, in your PTSD patients, is fatigue a common uh, comorbid symptom? Not so much. I mean, headache is definitely, and of course they have severe problems with, uh, you know, with, with sleep, I'm sort of thinking more in terms of, um, you know, there's a couple areas. One, one area is that, you know, I've worked in this, there's an acting drug called Accutane that, you know, I became, we did some brain imaging studies of that. And so I got involved in, you know, some of the, the, the legal battles about Accutane and its relationship with depression and, and suicide. And, you know, so there's a small number of people, it's not everybody, but there's a small number of people who develop this syndrome that's very similar to long COVID. So long COVID are the long-term effects of, of COVID that um, occur for more than a month. 
And that's what this recovery study is all about. So with, with long COVID, you get this prominent, the most common symptom are uh, fatigue and brain fog. And that occurs in about half of people. And the fatigue is, is extreme so that people cannot stay on task. They can't, you know, work. They can't, you know, do a mental exertion for extended period of times. And that's very similar to this sort of um, post-Accutane syndrome, which, you know, the, the, the Accutane is, a, is an isomer, the active form of, of vitamin A, which is retinoic acid. And retinoic acid, retinoid binding protein is the most common protein in the cerebral spinal fluid. So retinoids have all these effects on gene transcription and other things. They're in the same family of other, thing, of, of other compounds like steroids that are also associated with psychiatric side effects so and and bodybuilding hormones etc so so that that syndrome with brain fog and, and fatigue you know is similar to the the uh the syndrome with long covid of brain fog and fatigue which is probably you know seems to be sort of a post long-term chronic inflammatory reaction you know these uh you know with the activation of the microglia and astrocytes you know, possible deposition of these spike proteins, you know, in the, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the meninges, you know, the linings of the brain. And so that, that's, uh, you know, that's a very prominent part of that syndrome, which, you know, is now probably affecting millions of Americans. Have, have you done any work in this recover program, uh, looking at vagus nerve stimulation as a potential therapy? Because well, there, there's, I, I two, there, there's a lot of benefit. Yeah, so there's a couple of studies that come out that I you know reviewed this paper. Uh, one is from Bashar Badran, who's at uh, Medical University of South Carolina, uh, who's done. So our work has mainly been, you know, with the device that you helped develop, which stimulates the vagus and the neck, the the cervical stimulation. You know, we've done some some work with uh, another co- company called Everin, which stimulates the vagus in the ear. So you can also stimulate in, in the ear. That's called auricular stimulation. So uh, Bashar, who we did some collaborations with, stimulated in the ear. The, and by the way, you know, I think that probably either one is probably, you know, evidence looks like it, either one is good. You know, the, uh, the p- people working with the cervical device will tell you that there's more vagal fibers in the neck. But in any case, so Bashar did some studies of... Uh, auricular stimulation for long COVID syndrome showing in, in a, with active versus sham a reduction in long COVID symptoms, you know, with twice daily stimulation over the course of several weeks. And then there's a, a one, one study that um, uh, Peter, Peter Staps was the co-author on, you, you know, that looking at uh, uh, hospitalized patients and, and showing a reduction in C-reactive protein, which is a, a marker for um, for uh, inflammation in patients treated daily with the with the cervical device, which is the Gamacor. And then, you know, in another area of neuromodulation, um, Mara Bixen, who you know we collaborated with um, in terms of validating stimulation, the cervical stimulation using mathematical models, et cetera. He was a um, senior author of a of a study in acute you know, patients in the intensive care unit um, using this transcranial direct current stimulation, which is another, it's another neuromodulation that involves this sort of headset that delivers this electrical stimulation from multiple electrodes all over the head and showing a reduction in the time spent on the ventilator, you know, which is a pretty remarkable outcome. So, 
you know, VNS should be useful for acute COVID because it, you know, as you know, it dilates airways, it reduces in- inflammation in the periphery. You know, we've shown it blocks sympathetic function as measured with peripheral vasoconstriction, heart rate, and something called pre-ejection period, which is uh, the time for when the left ventricle uh, um, contracts to when the aorta opens. And and that's a measure of, of sympathetic tone in the heart. So it, we're reducing sympathetic tone in the heart which is good for PTSD, which is sort of a hypersympathetic syndrome, as well as opioid withdrawal, which is another hypersympathetic uh, 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 syndrome. Yeah, you, you've, you've certainly spanned quite a, quite a collection of indications. <laughs> you know, our experiences also go to just the average healthy person um, and the benefits that they experience with it as well, which uh, tend to be pretty remarkable and, and worth uh, worth worth the two minutes in the morning and the two minutes in the evening to deliver the therapy. The, the role of the vagus nerve in the central nervous system versus the periphery, you've, you said you were looking at several peripheral, um, you know, cardiac and, uh, and uh, vascular effects. Are there other peripheral consequences of the vagus nerve stimulation that you use to, to sort of determine whether or not the person has successfully delivered the therapy or, uh, otherwise, whether the effect uh, are are successful, I know obviously there's a lot of work done on circulating cytokines as well. But uh, what what else do you look at? Well, so the you know all of our work in humans has been in the um, using the cervical stimulation. So the vagus travels in the carotid sheath in the neck, and there's also branches in the ear, which was in the trochlea, which is kind of the inner part of the the ear that can stimulate. Which, in my opinion, is probably why that acupuncture point works, but that's another story. So, so it has fibers that travels, you know, to the brain. So they're, they're afferent fibers going to the brain and also efferent fibers that go to the periphery goes to the, the heart, the gut, the, um, the lungs. But at the, at the frequency that we're stimulating that, you know, from some of the modeling that Marm has done, it looks like that that we're primarily stimulating these myelinated fibers to go into the brain and we're not hitting the unmyelinated fibers. And so it's going through the brain and then from there, there's outputs to the periphery. And we're looking at a number of inflammatory markers, you know, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, interferon gamma. We look at heart rate and blood pressure and then peripheral vasoconstriction is a marker of sympathetic tone. So we're you know, we're looking at people when they're being stressed, both with traumatic scripts and then with these public speaking tasks and looking for this marker of peripheral um, synthetic tone, which is that, that people constrict their blood vessels in their finger. And we can measure that with something called photoplasmosography. And then we look at behavioral effects. So we look at, you know, one of the, one of the outcomes is, is anger with PTSD patients when they hear trauma recording. Or in, in patients with opioid withdrawal, these are people that are stopping using heroin or injectable heroin or, or, or prescription pills the night before. They come in in full-blown withdrawal, very sick. And, and then we, we give VNS or sham and we show reduction in heart rate. And we also have showed reduction in both um, subjective drug craving and, and withdrawal. And so that, that, uh, that study... Um, uh, we were sort of greenlighting to go to the next phase, which will be a, a larger randomized um, trial of VNS versus shan control um, for one week in an inpatient unit where the 
the main outcome will be um, opioid uh, withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, and it's really important just for those on the who are listening to, to recognize that 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 first week of opioid withdrawal is critical because the transition onto medications that can help you with the withdrawal process from there on really can't initiate until you're fully detoxed from the from the abused drug, um, and that takes about a week. So the biggest failure mode of rehab is during that first week where those withdrawal symptoms are so strong so intense. They're all being driven by the autonomic nervous system and by the central nervous system because there's nothing actually physically wrong with the body other than the immune system and the, and the autonomic nervous system are completely dysregulated. And so by using vagus nerve stimulation to re-regulate them, or at least get them closer, you can ameliorate the, as you said, the withdrawal symptoms uh, it becomes less offensive, less difficult to to sustain yourself through that full week. So that's the thesis, as I understand it, uh, for the reason um, for the study. We obviously have great hopes for that. Um, the, the opioid scourge is is really uh, taking a tremendous toll on on the youth in this country. What other areas where, do you think vagus nerve stimulation has potential that you're not, uh, you know, personally involved in, but you? are keeping your eye on. There's obviously work in, in degenerative disorders, Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's. There's work in stroke. There's work in you know, some work that I'm spearheading as a result of, a, of another call uh, that we did, another uh, uh, podcast in uh, autism and schizophrenia. Um, but what areas are, are, you, are you keeping your eyes on? Well, so another new area um, is uh, we... we Got funding from the VA to look at mild traumatic brain injury, which in, in this study it's it's uh, MTBI and PTSD comorbid. So, MT, for MTBI, for the VA's definition, it's a very um, you know lenient criteria. If you were exposed to any blast where you had momentary stunning, or um, if you you know hit your head and were momentarily confused, and you get the diagnosis MTBI. So, based on that loose criteria. You know, about 40% of people coming out of Iraq have comorbid PTSD and TBI. And so we decided to focus on that. And then in another VA-funded study, we're looking at PTSD alone without MTBI. So MTBI and PTSD uh, overlap quite a bit. I used to do disability evaluations for the VA because uh, I knew something about both disorders and would try and help the VA kind of parse them out. But they overlap so much that clinically it's kind of meaningless to try and think about them separately because they have, you know, they share in common problems with memory and they often participations have comorbid headache and and um, problems with concentration and irritability, et cetera. But one of the one of our findings is that um, if you pair and this we did this in PTSD, if you pair um, VNS with a with a learning task like trying to learn reading someone a paragraph then asking them to remember after a 15-minute delay, there's about a 30% improvement in recall. So based on that, we decided to, we kind of went through the rehabilitation arm of the VA to, to use this as a rehab for mild TBI and the cognitive deficits that occur in addition to the, um, you know, into helping their PTSD symptoms. So, you know, that's another promising area. And it's sort of, you know, getting into the healthy you know, it raises this other issue of like, you know, could you enhance 
you know, learning and cognition and, and just healthy people if you pair stimulation with, you know, when you're maybe trying to memorize a list of vocabulary words in French or something like that. And when we were... Go ahead, sorry. Have you, have you um, followed the work that's come out of the other DARPA program uh, looking at uh, exactly what you're talking about, enhancement, performance enhancement and cognitive enhancement associated with neuromodulation devices and the and the apparent success that vagus nerve stimulation has had the, the military is actually beginning to deploy vagus nerve stimulation using the cervical non-invasive stimulation for exactly that um and and some of the work that they've they've published is very consistent with what you're talking about where in the in the study that um mcintyre and uh trying to remember his uh his name um uh mckinley produced uh what they did was they kept patients or subjects awake that weren't patients because they were healthy normals kept them awake for 36 hours and then asked them to learn some rather challenging and complicated material and then look to see whether or not they could a learn it b recall it and uh and apply that knowledge the next day and whether or not they could even as far as 90 days out still recall the information that they learned and the results were exactly consistent with what you just talked about which is an improvement in the cognitive function the work that i'm doing as i mentioned up in british columbia the the long-term goal that i have with this is that i believe that that in adults where neurodevelopment is largely complete and you still but you still have uh, neurodevelopment in in quotation marks that's going on in the hippocampus, and that's where learning and, and memory formation is occurring, that the reason why vagus nerve stimulation is beneficial in adults would also apply in children, but it's going to be helpful in optimizing neurodevelopment. So the reason why we're looking at it in animal models of autism and schizophrenia is because those are models where neurodevelopment is being severely checked out, severely uh, you know, damaged. Um, but what happens in normal animals if you overlay vagus nerve stimulation during neurodevelopment? Can you actually optimize it beyond what is quote-unquote normal? Because everybody encounters inflammation. There's always some inflammatory challenge that's, that's present. If you can minimize the effects then, uh, of inflammation, perhaps you can optimize neurodevelopment. And, and I think there's some anecdotal uh, experiences and observations that I've made that suggest that vagus nerve stimulation in children can have a pretty profound effect on neurodevelopment and can actually um, enhance IQ, enhance learning capability, uh, speed of learning, um, ability to grasp new concepts and apply them um, in ways that are you know, I, I don't, I can't quantify it at this point. It's just observational, but I think that there's, you know, uh, something that I, for me personally, I find very interesting and it's right along the lines of what you're talking about, but taking it from adults back down to children. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Andy McIntyre was one of the performers in the, in DARPA. So that's why we, we started, you know, adding on this, this, um, extra test of looking at, looking at the effects of stimulation during a paragraph encoding. And so I'm, you know, I'm familiar with that work that came out of the U.S. Air Force um, on a variety of different kind of performance tasks. And so their application would be, you know, for instance, to, you know, if you have fatigue, 
um, servicemen that are observing, you know, drone footage for, you know, hours on end that they improve their ability to, to identify, um, uh, you know, insurgents, for instance, on, on drone footage. But, um, you know, one of, so there is the, and one of the, um, you know, there, we did have a, like a venture capitalist actually that came to one of the, to the, one of the DARPA meetings because DARPA is not only interested in, in developing kind of cutting edge technology that can be applied to the military, but they want to, you know, they have this other mission, which is to translate into, into actual practice. And as is with NIDA, their, their mission is to, um, to translate VNS into clinical practice for op- patients with opioid. Uh, disorders, which, you know, you're exactly right when you mentioned about the opioid withdrawal. And in fact, as they're going through withdrawal, their receptors are sort of resetting so that if they, if they do relapse and, and take drugs again, the risk of dying from overdose is enhanced. So that's like the most dangerous, uh, part of the, um, you know, part of the course. But, you know, one of the interesting things about, um, uh, application that, so we had this venture capitalist come, we said, well, we have the field of artificial intelligence. And in fact, we're, we have an AI that's making a transcript of this podcast as we speak called Autopilot, which I'll, make, I'll give you guys later. But um, So we have the field of artificial intelligence, but there's this other field of enhancement of human function. So I think VNS is an example of that. Um, you know, if you look at our findings of enhancing the ability to, to learn new materials, that could potentially be applied to um, human normal non non PTSD non you know normal individuals and and part of the DARPA program they 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 gave a grant to Arizona State to do the, to the, this ethics institute and so we had a conference about the ethics of electrical treatments and and I talked about you know what are the ethics of you know that maybe some people may have access to this technology that can enhance enhance new learning. And potentially IQ in children and, and some people can afford it and others cannot, you know, so that was something that kind of, that was sort of raised as a possible, possible issue. But, um, it is, it is interesting. I don't know that anyone outside of the military has actually studied, hum, you know, healthy human subjects, um, and the ability to, to enhance new learning and memory, but it'd be, be something that'd be very interesting. Well, I have, uh, <clears throat> there's a group of researchers up in New York that are working on um, autism. And so they're studying the effects of vagus nerve stimulation, non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation on the ability of autistic patients to learn. Because obviously learning uh, is um, generally, not always, but generally affected um, by autism. And so the question is whether or not they can see cognitive benefits in autistic patients. Um, as I mentioned before, we, we, there are studies looking at the cognitive benefits of vagus nerve stimulation in uh, patients, for example, with epilepsy and, uh, and imp- using implanted devices for treating their seizure disorder, demonstrating improvement in verbal and spatial relations and other uh, typically cognitive ca- tasks. and. Uh, and increasing vocabulary, et cetera. So there's, there's some reason to believe even from prior work that was done with implanted devices in patients who had other conditions, whether they be depression or, or, 
or uh, epilepsy, that vagus nerve stimulation can have this effect. Mike, I am very interested in that the ability of vagus nerve stimulation to potentially optimize neurodevelopment. And, and I, I completely agree that there is, uh, you know, an ethical concern, which is why I would say the solution isn't not to do it. The solution is to make it available to everybody. Find a way to make, uh, and we know, we already know that there are ways to activate the parasympathetic through exercise, meditation, good diet, good sleep habits, uh, positive social environment, and things like that, that are already correlated with positive intellectual outcomes. We, we know that people who have bad diets or live in, in stressful circumstances and grow up in them don't end up having the same cognitive abilities as people who have what, you know, it's typically nowadays called a more privileged upbringing. But maybe we can overcome that. Maybe we can help overcome those disparities that are just inherent in society with a technology that says, hey, if you are going to be growing up in an environment that is more stressful, where you aren't necessarily going to have the same opportunities for uh, sort of natural anti-inflammatory pro-parasympathetic uh, existence, we can, pro we can augment that for you. And as a result, you won't end up with uh, neurodevelopment that is less optimal. You can have that same optimal neurodevelopment. So, you know, if I had the opportunity, to, and I and I don't, but if I ever have the opportunity to speak on the on that behalf, I would say this is a great rebalancer. This is a great opportunity to really live up to that equality that we all want by giving everybody the same opportunity to have a neurodevelopment that's that's positive and optimized. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of you know. That's, you know, in my opinion, one of the major, you know, you know, one of the major drivers of, of disparities in terms of um, academic performance. And we've actually shown this, that, you know, that there's deficits in academic performance in children with PTSD, for example, and um, deficits in IQ in children. Uh, that was some work I did with full size of um, it was a school psychologist at Columbia, but um, you know one of the so one of the major drivers of socioeconomic disparities in school performance is the you know the stress of the environment. I mean, you can even show disparities just based on zip code. You now, so some zip codes are inherently more stressful. There's a number of things that can contribute or, or or have disadvantages that range from. You know, availability of food, you know, so so-called food deserts where people don't have access to the grocery stores to sell fresh food or pollution levels. There's some, you know, some evidence that that levels of, of air par particles in the air in urban environments can, you know, even get into the brain and affect the intellectual function. And, you know, noise levels. So people living near airports or have higher um, evidence of uh, kind of activation of the, the fight or flight response, which can in turn impair, um, you know, cognitive function and intellectual performance. So there's, it's multifactorial and, uh, you know, it's, uh, and, and complex. But yeah, I agree. We shouldn't, of course, say, well, let's stop developing this technology because of the risk of disparities, you know, how it's implemented. But, as far as you know, we haven't really gotten that far yet. We're still kind of 
looking at the effects on disease, you know, uh, some of these disorders that I mentioned and that you've been talking about. There are, I do, yeah. I can mention that, that there are a couple of studies in Alzheimer's disease as well. And in normal persons um, with implantable devices showing in, in enhancements in, in learning and memory. Yeah. It would be interesting to, to maybe consider a study um, like the, what you were talking about that you looked at with that uh, researcher at Columbia, looking at children who've had experienced uh, a, P- uh, a traumatic event and are experiencing PTSD and that they're having, that they end up forming less well on cognitive tests, um, whether the IQ tests or just you know, school in general, whether we could do a study demonstrating that if you take these children who have been identified as having experienced this trauma and put them on a vagus nerve stimulator, whether or not over a six-month to a, a 12-month period, we see that they don't experience that retardation of of cognitive development or or neurodevelopment, and that they actually overcome that that challenge in a way that is uh, you know supportive of their overall neurodevelopment. I mean, I mean, I'd hate to be I hate to be uh, the one randomizing somebody to a sham in that or into a you know into a matched control setting, but I think it would be just incredible to show that you can reverse that damage um, and allow that person to go back to a, a more normal, optimized, or optimal neurodevelopment and, and test it. I mean, would that be something that you think your, your, uh, your former collaborator might be interested in doing? Well, he's actually retired now, but I'm sure he would if, uh, if he were still doing these studies. A lot of the studies were done in, in the, the data was collected not all of it, but some of it was collected in Lebanon during the Civil War, mm. um, so they had a lot of lot of cases there. But that would that would be a good study to do. I'm I'm not a child psychiatrist myself, but I think that it would be, you know, that would be a great study for someone in child psychiatry to to perform. And they do have measurements of academic uh, performance, that, and you can look at those changes over time and. In terms of the ethics of it, you know, what we usually do is we, you know, we'll do a three-month randomization to sham or active, and then we give the device. You know, we've been getting, like, the electric power company to give devices to people uh, to use on open label after the after the randomized study. Or you know, thing is, yeah, the other thing is that, you know, there's studies in animals, too, showing that if you enrich environment, you know, increases cyclical neurogenesis and more deprived environment is associated with the opposite. And so we have evidence that just the richness of, of childhood, you know, access to, you know, in the animal models, access to toys, and even a wheel that they can run on, you know, diversity of, of you know, environment enhances hippocampal neurogenesis and by vacation enhances cognitive development. And it was even shown that just running alone, so it's been shown in marathon runners that they have, Increases in hippocampal volume as they train. Um, so just running alone see, and not, not, not weightlifting exercise, but aerobic exercise. Yes, that deep um, is, uh, enhances hippocampal neurogenesis. And there's studies showing that, that aerobic exercise is just as good as Prozac for the treatment of depression. 
Right. You, know, you get that deep breathing, the stretch receptors in the lungs being activated, that, that pro-parasympathetic uh, activation um, through the through the afferent channels. Yeah, I... I the efficient breathing patterns and the use of oxygen effectively and CO2 tolerance increasing with aerobic activity. It's a great uh, parallel there for sure. It would be interesting to see, and I don't know if, if Omar is doing any research like this, but um, in animals, as you said, you know, if, if you have animals that are given an enriched environment, they have a larger cognitive capacity, they, their neurodevelopment is, is stronger, um, and that if you deprive them of that, then the opposite occurs. They have uh, sort of a, and I'll, I'll misuse the term atrophy, they'll have an atrophy of that, of that neurodevelopmental capacity. Whether or not you could prevent some of that by, even though you've given them a very limited environmental trigger, whether or not you could restore some of that with vagus nerve stimulation. By activating the vagus nerve, could you provide them with that same capacity? They won't necessarily have learned, but they'll still have that same capacity. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be a, a great study to do. Well, maybe offline we'll have an opportunity to talk about some some things that that we can follow up on. I'd I'd love to I'd love to find some of your colleagues that are still in the in the field doing work, uh, especially child psychologists or psychiatrists who would be interested in looking at the effects of vagus nerve stimulation on cognitive uh, and uh, optimal neurodevelopment. To me, to me, if it, if the only thing that the therapy ever ever truly did was improve the neurodevelopment of children. That alone would be a legacy that I would be very happy to be a part of. That to me, making the world a happier, healthier, smarter place is, is, is sort of the goal everybody should have. But if we could do that, that would be pretty phenomenal. You know, I could give you the, you know, the contact information. I, I know one child psychiatrist, um, Glenn Sachs, he's in, uh, in, in New York, um, who, who does PTSD research, you know, and, Mainly with children on burn units is a lot of the work that he's done. Um, and I can maybe think of some others um, that might be good to, to, um, to, to connect with on, on that. Within the, uh, within the, um, yeah, I haven't seen any research in children with, in any of the people in the VNS field, but you know, the VNS field is not, you know, it's still limited in size. Right. Well, the, some of the work that we're looking at, as I said, is also in autism and schizophrenia and, and the role of, of maternal immune activation in um, disrupting normal microglial function. The microglia are so important in neurodevelopment. They're involved in neurogenesis. They're involved in synaptogenesis. They're the principal uh, pruners of the network. They're the ones that are involved through all the way through gestation and, and early childhood development. And, and then as adults, they're still doing all those same functions in the hippocampus, you know, to, to help learn and help. That's why, that's why when they're disrupted, you have difficulty learning, you have difficulty remembering things, you have difficulty recalling and, and applying newly, newly learned or newly exposed information. It would be really interesting, and, and we're doing the work right now, to show that um, vagus nerve stimulation can prevent that neurodevelopmental damage question is, is the other side of it also there? And that can you show that neurodevelopmental optimization can occur if you also layer vagus nerve stimulation on? So whether it be child psychologists or animal work, et cetera, I'm just very interested in seeing that 
because I think it's it's the natural, I won't say end game, but it's a natural uh, follow on to a lot of the work that you were doing and are doing in PTSD and in uh, traumatic brain injury, concussion. You know, anecdotally, we've seen and observed lots of positive responses in patients with concussions with really very, very brief, uh, very brief uh, uses of, of the stimulation. If they started out healthy, they get back to that healthy state pretty quickly. And maybe that's a question uh, getting back to PTSD. Did you find that there was a, a correlation between the therapeutic effect and the duration of the symptoms or the time since the trauma occurred that led to the PTSD? Because my, my, my wonder, based on things I've seen, whether or not the longer the patient has experienced the symptoms, the longer the patient has been living under those circumstances, the more difficult it is to overcome uh, with uh, with neuromodulation. Have you seen that? Well, so yeah. So in answer to your question, you know, we've we've always tried to do do studies where we get early intervention because I agree, based on the animal literature, the earlier the intervention, when there's still more black brain plasticity, um, the more likely there is to affect recovery. In, in, as a practical matter, um, the, the, the pilot study we did in 20 patients with PTSD randomized to sham versus active. It was, uh, they are all people with chronic PTSD, both veterans and, and, and with people with early trauma. So it, actually that's one of the, one of the grants that I had to give back to the, to the funding agency was early intervention for PTSD. And the, and the idea was to get people right when they came back from, Iraq um, within the first year. But the problem we ran into is, you know, this one of the symptoms of PTSD is avoidance. And so when they first get back, you know, from from being in the combat zone, the last thing they want to do is go down to the the VA or whatever and spend a lot of time talking about their combat experiences. So that was something that that you know we tried to mindfully, you know, approach and and we're not successful. We've tried to do studies in the emergency room where we get people soon after the trauma that that also, you know, in our hands, we have not been able to succeed because working in the ER and people who it's just a very it's a chaotic environment. The you know, the the ER physicians are focused on on you know triage and and, and dealing with the the task at hand. They don't have time to deal with talking to research assistants, et cetera. So so you are right that early intervention would be ideal, but it just as a practical matter, it's very difficult. You know, I would, I would say that, you know, if I were someone who, um, you know, I think we, we, you know, I, for instance, have experienced traumatic events where, you know, for instance, a house across the street caught on fire and I tried to rescue unsuccessfully one of the, one of the occupants. And I felt kind of a PTSD reaction come on right away. And, and the way I, knowing what I know about PTSD, I said that, you know, avoidance is not the way to go. You sort of have to immerse yourself in it and and try and work through the you know the the the, the cognitions and the intrusive memories and and the uh, and the feelings associated with it. But unfortunately, a lot of people will do the opposite. They try and kind of wall it off, and then it and then it, then it and then those traumatic memories become sort of what we call indelible. They get stored. They go from the hippocampus to sort of stored in long term storage in the cerebral cortex. And then it's more difficult for them, you know, to more difficult to intervene. 
you know, we know from animal studies that if you intervene, you know, soon, if you like pre-treat animals with, for instance, benzodiazepines, you can prevent the behavioral consequences of exposure to stress. So based on that, you know, we think that earlier intervention is the way to go, but we still are, are getting benefit though from even people with these chronic diseases that, that, um, you know, they've had PTSD for 20 years or more. Um, so it is, it is promising in that way. That's excellent. And, and you have to Cognitive processing is really important. Being able to co- being able to do that in the absence of an autonomic response is so much better because the autonomic response that you have from the fear just disrupts your ability to cognitively process what you need to process through. And I think one of the benefits of vagus nerve stimulation is the fact that it it forces that autonomic response back into the box mm-hmm. and allows you to remain in your head, cognitively capable of processing um, versus being overwhelmed by hyperventilating, your blood pressure going up, your heart rate accelerating, sweating. All of those fight or flight responses get suppressed by vagus nerve stimulation. It allows you to process through what you need to process. As you said, you need to, you know, it's funny, we we talk about in in the U.S. military versus the British military, it's this cultural difference. They, they go out on a mission, they experience some, some battle uh, that's a firefight that's very traumatic. They come back, and in the U.S. military, they immediately bring them in and they need to debrief. They need to go through a post, uh, you know, post-action uh, reporting process. And that involves them reliving through remembering everything that happened and discussing it, um, the, the trauma. And Yet the British, they come back and the very first place that they go is to the pub and they drink um, and they do their after action reporting usually the next day. Um, and that opportunity to go to a safe space, you know, cushion their autonomic nervous system with a little alcohol and, um, and have some camaraderie and sort of maybe even just forget about what it is that they live through. They don't have the, the same degree of PTSD because they have that ability to come down off that fight or flight response more rapidly and only return to it later the next day. Yeah, and there's even some studies, I think, in the aftermath of 9-11, there's this, this debriefing therapies were actually making people worse. Um, and one of the ideas was that, you know, it makes sense, like, if you have a traumatic event, let's send in a bunch of counselors right away to talk to people to help them deal with it. But what they found is that they were doing these debriefing sessions in groups. And probably what was happening is that maybe there was an explosion in the building and I was on the other side of the building. And then you put me together with the people that were directly exposed. And it traumatizes me more because I realized, wow, I could have really been injured in this thing. And so, so um, you know, they, they, they found that, you know, probably just leaving people alone, you know, it was better. This is one of the more common things that happens um, with firefighters and first responders across the board. It's a group that we've started to work with as well. Uh, I work with uh, a friend of mine who runs a company called Fire and Light, Fire to Light. uh, And essentially, they are supporting uh, first responders, primarily firefighters who have suffered significant traumas and haven't had the opportunity to process in a very similar way. And and not being given that opportunity to to go to the pub and get to a safe space, uh, a really interesting uh, group of people that we're working with as well. So clinically, that's uh, very relevant, I think. 
for sure. Yeah, probably the key element is is in what state, physiological state you're in when you do reprocess it. Um, that's probably the key element. And as you said, if you're reprocessing it in a, in a fight or flight response, you know, with your sympathetic system activated and your, your inflammatory system activated and, you know, whatever that is doing, you know, to neurons in the brain that are involved in memory um, is probably the key. But uh, reprocessing it in a, in a, in a more um, safe, subdued space is probably the key element, I think. Yeah, that goes directly to the polyvagal theories and, and allow this idea um, where being in a safe space allows parasympathetic activity to turn on vagus nerve to become activated and allows for um, us not to be in this fight or flight where we're imprinting potentially on the cerebral cortex as to what actually, uh, if there was an emotional meaning or an emotional driver in in that incident that was occurring so that goes really well to that uh polyvagal theory sure what's the ne- what are the next steps for you um we're we're we know you've been very prolific in your in your uh publishing of of data and uh and and doing of studies you mentioned the opioid study what are the what are the next things we should be looking uh coming out of your uh your lab and your uh research group yeah, so we had the the CUH three phase of the opioid study where we're going to, um, you know, that that's designed to to go to the FDA and get an indication for opioid withdrawal, and we're also looking at dopamine function in the brain using positron emission tomography in that study. So we're looking at the ability of BNS to hopefully enhance dopamine, you know, release in these in these patients with opioid use disorder who. Get this sort of chronic downregulation of dopamine with extended use of opioids, and then you know also you know we'll be following up on the effects of BNS on on cognition and ability to rehab and mild TBI patients, people with history of concussions, in uh, and look at the ability to enhance new learning and memory as well as you know the effects on the inflammatory systems in the brain. So I think that that'll you know that that'll be keeping us busy over the next next few years you know we'll probably we did apply for a breakthrough device indication for opioid withdrawal that the fda approved that for PTSD, but not for opioid withdrawal um probably because they'd already had approved this bridge device but the bridge device as i understand it requires like a needle to be put in the ear so i think that's something that people may not find as convenient it certainly has not been widely widely implemented so, uh, so yeah, that's. that's a per- I think it's a percutaneous device that requires, uh, uh, you know, injections or some sort of needling through the through the uh, skin of the ear, and then it has to stay there for a week. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm not saying it doesn't work because I think if it's the same mechanism, it probably should. But uh, I think uh, I think it might be a little easier to do something that's truly non-invasive. Yeah, that's my opinion, and I I don't. I don't own any stock in any companies or anything on purpose, just because I want to be able to talk about it without being accused of conflicts of interest. But personally, I think that the you know we had these debates in the dark performer meetings, where um, uh, you know I just said I'm not here to study the physiology of the vagus nerve. I'm I'm here to develop new treatments for for psychiatric patients and and people with related disorders like MPVI. So. 
I mean, the physiology of the vagus nerve is, you know, interesting and, and the effects, how it works is of major interest to me, but, you know, I wouldn't study it just for the sake of it alone. And that's why I think that the non-invasive devices offered more um, promise for psychiatry. Um, you know, one of the papers we wrote early on was called Back to the Future because I was involved, not officially, but kind of informally in, in advising some of the people working um, with this company that developed the invasive device, the um, Cyberonics. And in fact, the advisory board of Cyberonics was pretty much everybody that I'd worked with at Yale and at Emory. So there was a little club there that, um, you know, that, that kind of guided, you know, that, that company, in, which did get approval from the FDA for both treatment-resistant depression and, and epilepsy. But you know, the key there was the lack of um, of uh, Medicare, which caused all the other insurance companies to fall suit and not reimburse for it. So here you were left with, you know, some of my psychiatry colleagues have these clinics of people with implanted devices that we were treating for free because they couldn't even get paid for the follow-up visits. So, you know, so that's why, I, you know, I think maybe this is more promising. Well, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, a $30,000 implantable device, if there's... If there's something on the order of 10 million people out there who have uh, medically refractory depression in the United States who would be who would qualify for uh, a surgical implant, uh, that's thirty thousand dollars. That's a that's a hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that would need to be spent. <laughs> to those I could see why why a government agency like Medicare might trip on that, and and why why insurance companies might be a little uh, risk averse when it comes to that, but. Uh, but I think a non-invasive approach that's much cheaper and uh, and much less involved. Uh, it's on the same level of of the medications that the patients are using. It would be it would be a lot more approachable and appealing uh, for for both physicians as well as patients as well as payers to to get to get there. I do hope that it happens. I I do think it's it's a successful therapy. But I probably have a little bit more interest in the. Uh, in the pure science aspects of it, but that's because I'm not a clinician. I'm a scientist, <laughs> but uh, but it's wonderful to to see the work that you're doing and to, and to have had an opportunity to share with our audience the the type of work that you're doing. And we wish you the best. We think that uh, the things that you're doing are are just at the at the bleeding edge of of where we're going to be able to see this therapy uh, go in the future. So it's it's uh, it's great to have an opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, it's been great to be honest in that great discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it, it really was a wonderful discussion. I learned a lot personally, and that's uh, really exciting for me. So uh, to everybody who's listening, if you got to this point, great job, good work. And uh, keep listening and please share this with one person who you think could utilize this information to upgrade their health. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>